Conversations with the wayward and the wise. This is your host, Dr. Ila Manga, coming to you from Johannesburg, South Africa. Threads of Healing is the space for exploring what healing could mean by having deep conversations with wisdom keepers, doctors, artists, storytellers, fact finders, and visionaries. We bring awareness to the voices who have answered their call to heal and to discover a new way of living, breathing and being in the world and will inspire you to do the same. So today our conversation is with a man who has committed his life to social justice, education and to supporting the process of societal change and healing. He currently runs three NGOs, all dedicated to supporting education and youth empowerment. Sivan Maslamoni, welcome to Threads of Healing. Thank you. So you are a student activist, you're a trade unionist, a social entrepreneur, a zoologist, a community volunteer. It feels like you've always kind of had a calling to support societal change. Was there an event in your life that you believed shaped your your drive and has that driver changed or do you feel it's the same it's mm. always been with you i mean i i have memories of um, some things but i'm not sure that it's a single event mm. my most memorable one is um when i was 16 uh, someone blew a whistle at school assembly and said one azania one nation and I was a bit puzzled, and it was the start of uh, the 1980s school's boycott. And um, I remember being asked by my grandfather what this was about, and for the first time in my life, uh, having to justify myself and my actions by explaining to my grandfather why I chose not to go to school. Um, so that was a, a, if there wasn't a moment, um, that could have been it, but there were so many other things. Um, Do you remember what you said to him? Well, my grandfather's English was very limited. So he asked me, what is this boycott? <laughs> and it was so hard to explain to him. All I remember is that I didn't have words for him because it was hard to explain to him what it, what it was. And my grandfather was, um, well, he accepted it. He didn't, um, he didn't, he didn't uh, challenge me in any way or seemed like he understood me. I'm not sure whether he was accepting that his trusted grandson was doing the right thing and he trusted me or whether he didn't understand. So it was hard to say. Mm -hmm. But I had to do the same with my sensei. My, I'd been in karate school for eight years and my sensei was like my teacher, my, my best teacher. And he asked me the same thing. I had to explain to him. So there was a, certainly a, if there was a step up from my normal uh, life, that 1980s school boycott was, mm. was it, um, we spent, so it wasn't a much more than that, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a new moment. You know, 1974 when Fili came to power, I remember my father being so excited reading the newspaper and uh, I didn't understand why he was so happy, 
but he felt that freedom had come to a neighbor and it was coming to us soon. Oh. Um, I remember driving to visit family past a, a white school and like being so amazed that there were so many fields and a swimming pool at school. And we had, I was in, went to school, which was an ar- abandoned army barracks. So I don't think there was a single moment. It was a accumulation of things I'd seen and observed. And Where did you grow up? In a place called Mirbank, which is um, uh, just south of Durban, um, trapped between two oil refineries. And, uh, so I woke up to the 7 o'clock plane, aeroplane, because it was right next to the airport. Yeah, that's where I grew up. And so you finished school and went to university. What was your path? Yeah, um, I went to finish school. I did finish school, but actually from that age of 16, uh, having joined the school boycott, didn't do school for the entire year. They were forced to pass us because they couldn't keep uh, all the students behind. Um, but then I had two more years of school, and I'd, I'd learned the trick of doing enough to pass, but I'd signed out of school. I mean, mm. I understood from reading Hard Times, Charles Dickens, listening to Pink Floyd's, another brick in the wall. I'd understood that schooling was part of the system of trapping me into a world I didn't want to be in. So I, I knew I had to pass because my father was desperate for me to finish school. He didn't finish school. And he was desperate for me to go to university because none, no one in my family had gone to university. So I'd learned to, to do it just enough to get to university. Um, and I did. And what did you choose to, to study at university at that point? Um, well, I, it was more a matter of choosing what not to study because my father was desperate for me to be a doctor and I, because he wanted me to do that, I chose not to ever want to do that. <laughs> right. so, oh, that rebellious streak was there from yeah. a very early age. Eh? I, can't, <laughs> can't, I can't recall why. I just felt like his motivation was wrong. I uh-huh. felt like he, I think he was so de- desperate for his family to do well that he wanted someone to do that well. Because, you know, having the DR title, you know, yeah, exactly. comes with a lot of status, right? Yeah, so I, and I, that's what I resisted. Mm. And so I, I learned to do enough to pass, but I also learned enough to not get into med school and do well enough. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I got Good into, strategy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I was fascinated by science. Um, ah. I love science. I love the, I love the logic. I love the, the puzzles. I love the challenge, the mental challenge of science. Mm. And I love the way science made me understand the world. So I, I did a BSc in natural sciences. Um, and I wanted to uh, be an environmental activist. Um, but at that stage, I was such an outlier and no one had heard of being an environmental activist. Right, yeah. Um, and what I, does that even mean? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, I remember my girlfriend asked me once, uh, why are you studying this thing? It's such an obscure thing. You spend all your time in a white coat in a lab cutting frogs and fish and studying zoology. And um, so this was the time of the 80s where, you know, the struggle was raging and she she couldn't understand why if the struggle is raging, you know, what are you doing with all these obscure things? It's not going to help us in society. And remember telling her that yes, we'll resolve the class conflict in society one day, but the real conflict to resolve is this conflict between humanity and the environment. Wow. And then she listened to me and she listened to me and she listened to me and then she said, what a lot of nonsense to justify your <laughs> fascination with science. And that, 
So it was really hard even to persuade my girlfriend that studying science was useful. Yeah, but even then, you could see the connection between uh, trying to unravel the mysteries of the universe as a way to make sense of this human condition and societal ills. Yeah, you know, I grew up in Mirbank and from my early childhood, my father kept saying that he's going to take us away from here because it literally it's, Mirbank is right in between two oil refineries. Uh, if you dry your clothes on the line, black spots appear on it. And it's got the highest rates of cancer and asthma in the world, I think. It, it, made, it made, recently made the list of the top 10 most polluted places in the world. And that includes places near nuclear plants and things like that. So, you know, I have a family full of asthmatics. And uh, so it was sort of obvious that this kind of pollution is unsustainable. And I could see my aunties struggling to breathe. You know, I, I, have desperate, I have memories of my father putting my aunt in a car, taking her to the hospital. Mm. It was struggling to breathe. Mm. Um, so I'm not sure if that influenced me, but yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know whether it was that or whether I just loved the, mm, mm. The, the fascination with understanding the world, I suppose. Mm, mm. Uh, it wasn't all good because um, sure. it made me reject my mom's explanation of the world. Which was? Well, she had a very spiritual explanation of the world, which is not to explain it but to live in harmony with it, to respect the sun, to pray to the sun. And for me, the sun was, you know, a celestial object made up of gas and <laughs> right. And uh, it, t- it took me a long time to realize that I could have both. Wow. Um, yeah, so that's my, that's my beginning, I suppose. So you've worked as an activist in the trade union movement and in, in so many ways. You've really kind of committed to being a, a social change agent. And we have such a rich culture of activism in this country. And, and a lot of it, rightly so, is driven by anger. It is a fuel that kind of um, catalyzes change. And, 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 you know, so, so anger has an important role. Has it had a role for you? And, and has, have you been driven by anger? And has that changed for you over the years? No, so um, that's a very interesting question for me personally. The short answer is no. Um, I've always been uncomfortable with anger as the engine of activism. Um, I I feel like it's the wrong way to mobilize people. Um, But personally, um, when I was a child, I must have been five or six, um, I was told I have a bad temper. So one day, in fighting with my sister, in anger, I punched the window. I cut my hand and... So it's a moment of anger. And my father came back from work and said, you are going to go to karate school and learn to control yourself. <laughs> and then I went to the dojo and um, my sensei taught me that anger was not really useful, that, um, that you had to control your, your energy and control how you do things. So and uncontrolled anger is destructive. Yeah, and in, in activism, I've definitely seen that. I mean, I've definitely seen the power of uh, lifting a people. So, I, you know, there were moments when coming out of a rally, I could, I felt like I could overturn a truck with my bare hands. But that's feeling power, not feeling angry. Right. That's different. Yes. Um, there's definitely a, 
as an activist, there is a sense of, I suppose, self-interest, which is that, you know, personally I was restricted, my family was restricted from opportunities. So, yes, I wanted freedom out of self-interest. Um, so in that sense, you could say that activism can be self-interest, but it, I saw a lot of self-sacrifice. I, I was fortunate to have had mentors who had choices, they could have lived comfortable lives, but had given it all up to help others. Um, so I think that helping others has been the, the force for me. Uh, it's definitely been the force uh, of people around me. Um, so I've, I've always felt that the activists I was lucky enough to know and to learn from were doing a lot of incredible, deep personal sacrifice. Sacrifice was the, the force, not anger. And I see that in your life now. I mean, you know, just in your work with Harambi and um, and Pilo and the organizations you you run at the moment and also your work with the Solidarity Fund right now, you know, your work continues to be driven by this need for service. I'm really interested in your exploration of what healing means for men and and your work with we men and this, you know, we've had conversations around um, work with men and why this is so important. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what you've been thinking around why this work is so important? What is what is the work that men need to be doing in terms of healing, in, especially in our context? Uh, yeah. <clears throat> so in the context of organizations that are driven by helping others and changing the world, it was clear to us that um, th there was a blind spot of, uh, how, of the role of men. Not that men were overtly doing anything destructive. The organizations you're describing, you know, I don't run them. I, I help and support and I'm inside them. They're run by women. Mm -hmm. But even in, even in very female-dominated domin organizations, uh, men can behave badly. And so it's, there were some early signs of that. Um, uh, was it appropriate for men leaders to have relationships with women in the organization? So, so if you ask that question, it feels like, on the one hand, hey, people get married in organizations. They mm -hmm. dedicate themselves to it. They fall in love. Um, but then it's not that obvious. when You see that uh, if you're in power and you're having sexual relationship with, let's say, junior women, so junior, not in, a, not in that bad sense, but in a young woman who look up to people in power, whether it's a man or a woman, are you using your power to get sexual favors and to have relationships? So that makes that, you know, that that's the nature of the question. So the questions of violence, and it's, that's obvious moral and legal questions, but in the, in the very subtle acts of what men expect, and this includes everybody. So it for me that so for me as the sort of you're the older married guy not involved in that kind of stuff. Um, I was always looked upon by the organisation to say, "Can you go and talk to that guy?" Mm -hmm. And realise that actually self righteousness is not helping. You know, me being the good guy and everyone else being bad is. Mm -hmm. But it's not actually about good and bad, right? Exactly, exactly. So it took me a while to realise actually I I have put myself in the same boat as everybody. Yeah that all men are in positions of privilege and you've got to start with acknowledging that. And that's, that's 
that's taken a while to get to. Um, it's not so difficult to deal with, as I say, the obviously wrong things, but the obviously deeply uh, wrong things that are invisible to, to men and often invisible to women, mm. subtle things. Uh, that's been hard to get to. And then we're at the point where there's a group of men put their hands up to say, yes, we want to lead a process. We want to understand the journey we need to go through. And we have to accept that we're part of a problem. We have power and privilege. And then we have an obligation. And, and then the difficult journey of what does it mean practically and what does it mean. And, and learning to work with not knowing, but just starting has been a fascinating journey for me. It's my learning journey at the moment. And I think that is like a, a principle of healing. It's like you really, and this is certainly what this whole pandemic experience has brought us is just not knowing and being comfortable with the not knowing, but just, you know, taking the next step. Yes, exactly right. I think that um, certainly the thing I had to unlearn. Uh, so what science gives you is um, both the combination of certainty, which is, you have, to, you have an hypothesis, you have to invent one. Uh, and that gives you so much certainty until someone breaks it down. Right. And then you start again. Yeah. So something about uh, science, even in the un unobservable, uh, like we, when you talk about atoms, we have to draw it, right? So it's so we, we learn to be so attached to certainty, to clarity, to visibility, to what we can see or pretend we can see, like an atom. That we're not really, um, it's so hard to work with the opposite of uh, chaos, of uh, uncertainty, of not knowing. And not knowing is seem to be stupid. You seem to be ignorant. And ignorance is not a good word, right? Uh, no one likes to be ignorant. Right. But sometimes not knowing is your teacher. Uh, deliberately giving up what you know mm -hmm. is a uh, really important act. It's more important than learning something. It's mm. giving up something. So uncertainty is definitely an um, important quality now for leaders. It's definitely learning to live with uncertainty, ambiguity, not live in binaries of yes and no, black and white. Learn to understand complexity. Um, and the thing that I, when I'm lost, I, I do revert back to uh, my love for science and ecology teaches us that. That there is no cause and effect that's so direct and easy. The work. laws of nature. Yeah, exactly. and we we are part of nature, exactly. so the same kind of principles govern the way we live, the way we operate. Right? Yeah. So that's been an interesting learning. And I think definitely, I think the pandemic is an opportunity. I'm not sure if we'll use it, but it is an opportunity for definitely organisations, uh, for individuals for sure, to understand that um, this idea that you can have twenty year plans and have certainty and work with yes and no's. Um, while that's important as a structure, you have to learn in the day-to-day -to, -day to work with uncertainty, complexity, um, not just for people, but for everything actually, whether it's supply chains or environmental issues or problems we're trying to solve. Mm. Um, yeah, and the, the We Men journey that a group of men in these organizations have taken um, you know, everyone's often looking for what, like, what's the next five steps, mm. and it's useful to say, let's just take the next one, mm. and maybe we'll learn from the next one what the next one should be. Mm. And that's very hard because you have to justify people's times and schedules and plans and money. Mm. 
But that's what we're learning. But also it's like a shared commitment of everybody around what they believe is important and taking responsibility for um, for a crisis that we're facing, not just in our country, but on a global level, you know. Mm. There's a profound quote that I came across recently um, by a man called Sterling Tolles, and he says that, we must not only heal the suffering that oppression causes, but we must also heal the suffering that causes oppression. Mm. And uh, I've really been sitting with this, and um, I think that, well, for me, this is what drives me too, and this is why I'm uh, so passionate about supporting um, the, the we men uh, cause and the work that you're trying to do. That you know, often we, we as women, uh, get lost in anger, and we we lose the sense of the hurt that is at the root cause of these societal ills. And so, can we as men and women walk together to have the courage to say, okay, uh, you know, we don't know. But let's figure this out together. Mm. Um, so I, I'm really excited about the work that you're doing with women. Mm. Because I feel it's a neglected conversation. And one that needs to happen uh, across more sectors in, in all fields, in, in, in so many spaces, you know, and... Do you see that this is possible? How do you see that this is possible to, to take this conversation forward? Well, I think having just having the conversation is a start. Um, I don't think we have a choice. I think it will happen. Um, and it's very interesting how a lot of things we think we're in control of in terms of doing good, we're not. Um, so, for example, when you think about well, what's given women the rights to vote and to work, that has been quite powerful, right? In the last century, uh, women entered the workplace. So for, when I was growing up, my mother was a housewife and she was expected to be at home until we got too poor and she had to go to work. Or we were always poor, but poor, poorer in the sense. Um, but then there was an opportunity for her to go to, for her to, go to work and it wasn't a question. Whereas in her mother's generation, it would have been not even imagined, never mind possible to do. But it's uh, it's fascinating to ask where did that come from? Did it come from a mother's personal will? Or did it come from the society in which we were? And um you know the you know the idea that women were at work came out of the first world war, right? Mm. All the men went to fight right. and then suddenly there was no one to make bombs in England. And women had to get trained to work in a factory. And that started, my mother worked in a clothing factory. And so women working in factories came from war. Now, no one wants to accept that a terrible event like a war shifted equality. Right? It's not a nice thing to admit. But I think that um, the world of work definitely today um, shifts um, how work works. Like, you know, the idea that men occupy certain roles is not acceptable anymore. Um, 
women leaders, both politically and in organizations, are emerging. That idea is emerging as much more effective, more powerful leaders to work with complexity, where people matter more than profits. People realize that now. I think that you know, enlightened businesses, enlightened organizations will lead the way. And as they lead the way, it becomes the norm. So I think that we've, we'd, I would definitely see that. And therefore, the men will get carried across the line. It's like not as if we're going to lead anything. We'll get dragged across the line by, by the environment, by women leaders, by it being shown to us that it's going to be a better world to, to live in than the one we're living in now. Uh, well, that's my experience so far. It's not as if we're personally driving the change. We are being forced to change, and we're not keeping pace, actually. So I would say that if I have a feeling about my own self in the three men work, it's often about not keeping pace, not doing enough, um, needing to do more. Um, and I think that's, that is going to be truer and truer for more and more people. And certainly this generation of 20-year-olds now mm. will expect something totally different in the pace of change. I think it's mm. going to happen. Yeah. And it doesn't uh, – so personal willpower – matters a lot. In other words, being involved in it, like uh, being in front of it, will, it's going to teach us new things if you want to be an activist and be involved in leading that change. But if you don't want to be involved and uh, don't do that, then you're going to get left behind and you'll be forced to change. It's much better to be inside it than to be outside it. Um, and I learned that from activism. You know, I could have been a good student and uh, done really well as a scientist and sat in a lab and but I would have been maybe a really bad scientist, right? Disconnected from the world. And being an activist really taught me a lot. So I would say to men everywhere, you know, if you, you have to, first awakening is useful and then jumping in, even if you don't know what to do, start. And what we're trying to do is to build a community of men. Mm. Um, you know, there's even questions about that. Why men? Why, why that gender definition? And yes, it's not right, but it's right enough for now to start and we'll change as we learn. Mm -hmm. So yes, I think that what I'm learning in that is that you're absolutely right. Uh, the pain that causes oppression is you can hear, you can hear and feel that amongst the men when they talk about um, who we are. Yeah. We're all in tears often in conversations, sometimes very what seems like simple conversations. And suddenly for me, it's like, wow, my colleagues at work are happy or not happy are comfortable to cry in front of me. And we all grew up knowing that men don't cry. So I, th I think that... That in itself is such a powerful healing and catharsis. Yeah, and I think without that, then we're not going to be authentic, right? As you say, if we don't deal with the pain that causes oppression, as, you, as that quote says, yeah. um, you're always in danger of causing more pain. You do so much of work with youth in these youth accelerators, the work of Harambe, Pilo. What excites you about the youth of South Africa? Well, I think the, gen the idea of young people, if you look at it, let's say, biologically or socially, young people are always exciting in every generation, in every society. The willingness to step out of the rules, to be rebellious, uh, to recreate things, to rewrite the rules. That energy is always there in that generation. And if you can create platforms for that energy to be constructively used, you just create renewal all the time, right? 
And the work at Arambi just reaffirms that. I mean, there's the young people, these are unemployed young people. You know, they have every reason to be angry, to be destructive. Yet the creativity and the energy and the power, when I say power, I don't mean political power, I mean the personal power of young people I encounter in that world is just phenomenal. It's very inspiring. In fact, it's what keeps that organization going. It's not just the funding and the leadership. It's the the customers of that organization. The young people are just phenomenal. So when anyone walks into that organization, they just feel an energy. So whether it's the president or a foreigner or another young person, they feel like they're walking into a positive, energetic space. You can feel it. And energy is that kind of thing, right? If it's not there, you know it's not there. And if it's there, you feel oh, it. Oh, it's so tangible. Yes. Um, yeah. The thing I, I feel like has been, the thing I learned in the Rambi world, um, when we started, the assumption was very simple. These young kids need something. They need skills. And we were going to train them because that's what societies do. They train young people. And then we went to ask employers, like, why don't you take a risk and employ these young people? Because they're so amazing. They're creative, blah, blah, blah. And then young and employers told us why they will not take a chance on young people, right? They're unreliable. They don't have discipline. Uh, they're entitled. So That's give, the narrative, right? That's but the, it's also their lived experience. Okay. So it's not a false narrative. That's their experience of young people. Right. So there's a gap between what young people are and what they could potentially be, not what they are, what they potentially could be, and what how they show up in the real world. And the way they show up in the real world is what the real world tells them to be. You must learn skills. You must go to school. You must learn to read and write and have certificates and qualifications. But the secret that no one tells young people is what employees told us, which is that discipline is what you need. Now, young people are very capable of discipline. You know, I was six when I went to karate school and I learned to sit on my knee and meditate, right? Not because I was special. It's because children all over the world do that. Um, you know, when I was 16, I learned to, uh, to control my anger. And you can do that. Um, I learned to be on time. Now, if no one taught me to be on time, why would I be on time? So, so when you say discipline, you ask an employer, what do you mean by discipline? They mean mostly punctuality. Because mm -hmm. so, if you can self-regulate on time, then the assumption is you can self-regulate on other things. Mm -hmm. But no one tells you that. Right? I remember being young and not being on time, or going to meetings late, I met an old man once at a meeting. I was a volunteer for a decade in Chatsworth. And an old man was 80 years old, still volunteering. And he was always on time. He's always well-dressed and on time. So I asked him, Uncle Kiston, why are you always on time? He said, my son, when I was in the Communist Party night school in the 1950s, the first thing they did was to buy me a watch. Everyone got watches. Wow, that's very nice. Why did they buy you a watch? So that we could be on time. So, you know, like, you learn discipline, right? Yeah. Activists need discipline. So young people learn discipline in five minutes. So they needed discipline. They needed to be more social. So in the workplace, the most important skill is a social skill, not an intellectual skill of mathematics. It's how you get on with people and do you smile and are you likable? And young people are entirely likable and smiley and energetic, right? Just no one tells them that. So they're very grumpy because they don't have permission to smile and be natural. So Rambi discovered these magical things that are not about going to school. It's about... Just what's inherently there. It's inherently there. It's All it. human beings have that. We just, the world tells you something. We'll, we are taught to be inauthentic, mm. to be machines and to learn knowledge 
when actually it's not that. It's a lot of the human instincts of who we naturally are. Discover, so a lot of what we do in Arambi is get young people to discover themselves. We do personal mastery because we tell people that you are more than what you see on the surface. Learn about yourself. And we start them on a journey of discovery of themselves. But it's the environment that you create that supports that process of tapping into those inherent qualities. Yeah. It has to be an environment of trust, but trust is a peer network. Young people work really well in peer networks. If the network is set up right, peer networks can go very wrong. It can go very right. You know, if, you're an, if you're a member of a sports club, it's joyous. If you're a musician in a, in a group, it's joyous. So young people are entirely capable of social assimilation and positive peer networks. Someone has to trigger it. And unfortunately for young people, they're often left to their own devices to do that. And they either join the right peer network or the wrong one. And as grown-ups in society, our job is to find ways to just, just turn the right switch on and do nothing more. And it does come down to the work that you do, which is about discovering yourself and the power of yourself and respecting yourself and your understanding how simple things matter. So we do do breathing in Arambi. So we teach young people that when you have a amygdala attack and you want to fight, flee or freeze, we say pick a flower, bend down, pick a flower and smell the flower. One deep breath yeah. is good enough to pause you from That's making a bad step. decision. That's the first step, yeah. right? Yeah, it's as simple as picking a flower. Um, yeah. Mm. You do so much in the world, Stephen, like especially now, you know, being involved with the Solidarity Fund and um, just you know, just keeping all your other commitments going. Like, how do you support yourself? How do you sustain your energy? What are your anchors? Well, I come to you for a breath, cl for a breath class at the session. I have learned that um, paying attention to your own health yeah. is important. Um, so I started to get fit, eat better. When you're young, you can get away with a lot of stuff, you know. Yes, uh, you that's can true. You can drink and eat anything and uh -huh. your body just carries Body's you Body's forgiving. Yeah, it's it? incredible. But as you get older, you realize, man, being healthy is good. Yeah. I learned that then the same is true for kids. You start them early and... It's good. So I, I do that. I have kids. Uh, my kids are joys. Oh, yes. Um, so I have the time to, um, I said to my kids, I'm a retired father, so don't expect anything of me. So I I, I can be childish with them. And, uh, uh, so silliness is, I think, an important thing. You know, just taking ourselves less seriously. Yeah, I would, I would say that um, I love being silly with my kids. And they, with kids in general, mm. not just my kids. The thing I like about, especially little kids, is that it's an invitation to be childish, and I really enjoy that. Like, with no judgment. <laughs> yeah, you, you can't pull a funny face in a meeting and get away with it, right? <laughs> but, but you can with kids. Um, so I love, I love that. I, I love uh, that. That's my form of engagement of human beings. I love the, I love one-on-one -on -one engagement. So yeah, I, um, I'm learning. I, I find learning to be energizing. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, at the moment, I can do anything from, um, I'm doing a, a course on Coursera, on contemporary art, which ah. I can do that at school. I've been watching you on Instagram, actually, and your portraits are incredible. So I started painting last year, and I decided to do the most difficult thing. Because if you're painting flowers, it's probably easy and fun, but portraits is hard. Oh, yes. 
Yeah. So I decided to do that. So in the, when the lockdown started and Zoom meetings started, I just decided that the only way to cope with Zoom meetings is to have my easel right next to the computer. Oh, wow. I love that. So I, I, could, that I could paint while the meeting's happening. Uh, really? Yeah, yeah, but don't tell anyone that. <laughs> so the That's portraits, phenomenal. The portraits yeah. you see on Instagram are all Zoom portraits. No ways. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And also what it taught me that, so painting, what I'm learning about painting is that it's the act of letting go, of not being anxious about being judged. Because if you're being anxious about being judged and you want to draw well with control, but then you lose control, it's somehow more interesting. So the thing about the Zoom portraits is that you can't really be in control because you really have to concentrate on the meeting too, right? So your brain is in the meeting, but my hand is on the page. And that's been an interesting discovery. Oh, that's so fascinating. Well, Stephen, I mean, I have just thoroughly enjoyed every minute of this conversation. So, you know, Threads of Healing was about having conversations with the wayward and the wise. Which would you relate to more? Wayward. Okay. <laughs> no question. Uh, yeah, I would wear that badge with pride. Fantastic. Yeah. So if listeners would like to connect with you and know more about the work that you're doing and with We Men, where can they find you? Um. Well, I work in a great organization that doesn't really have a website, which is why it's great. So you'll have to send me an email. Um, it's uh, seven at yellowwoods.biz, uh, B-I-Z. It's an unusual website, uh, email address. Perfect. Seven, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure to chat to you. Love chatting to you. Let's do this again. Sure. Thank you for listening to Threads of Healing, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ila Manga. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do so on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And feel free to leave a review and tell us what you think. If you have found this podcast inspiring and useful, and you know someone who would too, please feel free to pass this along.